Hello, I'm Hans Lee from Livewire Markets, and you're tuning into Signal or Noise, the podcast. Each episode, I'm joined by Australia's top macro minds to explain how you can make money from a top-down perspective. If you're confused by the data or a little lost in the headlines, this show is for you. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe to our show and the Livewire Markets and Market Index websites. And a reminder that everything you're about to hear is information only and not advice. So with that said, let's go. Hello, I'm Hans Lee from Livewire Markets, and this is Signal or Noise. This month, our debate is dedicated to the Reserve Bank of Australia review, which was recently handed down. Many agree that it was long overdue, but what actually does it mean for investors? So, to do that, let's bring in the panel. We've got Kerry Craig, Global Market Strategist at JP Morgan Asset Management. Lovely to have you, sir. Warren Hogan, the Chief Economic Advisor at Judo Bank and the former Chief Economist at Credit Suisse Australia and ANZ. And, of course, Diana Messina, AMP Deputy Chief Economist and our series regular. Welcome to you all. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Let me open with this. I'm sure you've all read the review and, and, and what's in it. If you had to give the RBA review a score out of five, what would you give it and why? Dan, I'll start with you. I'm going to go with a three okay. out of five, so I guess neutral. I mean, I understand why the review was done, mainly because the RBA hadn't hit its inflation target for many years before the pandemic. So, and normally doing a review of an institution, I mean, all private institutions are subject to reviews through the ASIC or whatever other regulator there is other central banks around the world go under review. So it, it does make sense um, to have done something to address the issues, but I worry that the review actually went too far and will dilute the impact that the Reserve Bank has in its board settings. Yep. Okay. So we'll, we'll, we'll have that conversation then in a, in a second about whether it went too far or, or not far enough. Kerry, if you had to give it out of five, what would you give it and why? Uh, I'm usually fairly generous. I mean, I would give my Uber driver four stars even if they crash the car but uh, I'm gonna go slightly lower I would be a less than three I'd go like a two because there was some things that I think they just left out of the review maybe they felt it's too hard basket does come back to why the RBA you know never hit that target does it have the right policy tools is a two to three percent target the right one to have um, should you be inflation targeting at all I think there's many many broader questions about how monetary policy has evolved over the last few years it could have at least been touched on or drawn out and I think leaving those things out means that the review, while necessary, uh, perhaps was a little bit incomplete from some regards. Well, good on you for still giving your Uber driver a four-star rating. Uh, Warren, what about you? Yeah, so I'll go in between, I'll go two and a half. Um, and my one-liner is, chat GPT could have written that review. Um, it is essentially a scan of what's happening around the world in the last decade. Uh, perceived best practice. I believe what the RBA has been doing for the last 30 years is best practice. Up until the pandemic, they were not only one of the finest institutions in this country, they were one of the finest central banks in the world. To the point about the review, to Kerry's point, very important. I'll give you two things they left out. First of all, did we talk about the Australian dollar in this? Monetary policy starts with what you want to do with your currency. Now, presumably the Aussie dollar wasn't brought into it because we want to be a floating exchange rate. If we want to be a floating exchange rate, then we're just doing what everyone else is doing. Yep. They didn't uh, address that issue in any, in any length. And the other one is they left APRA out of it. Um, you are not doing monetary policy without your banking regulator. Well, let's actually just extend that conversation now a little further with topic number one. Does the RBA review go far enough? Now, in principle, 
The 51 recommendations will likely be taken on either in full or at least mostly in part and implemented with mostly bipartisan support. On the off chance you miss them, we don't have time to go through all 51 recommendations, but we can give you the five major themes and let's put those on the screen. They are a clear monetary policy framework, stronger decision making and accountability, an open and dynamic central bank, more robust corporate governance, and the need for institutional and cultural change. We've heard a little bit already from the panel, but now I'll ask you formally, do the recommendations go far enough or do they go too far? Diana, signal or noise? I'm going to say noise because, I, I mean, it, it's, if we adopt these recommendations, we won't ever know what the counterfactual would have been. How would have the RBA responded during the pandemic? Well, we don't know. But if I think about what um, Warren and Kerry were saying, that pretty much the review just is a copycat of what other central banks are doing. If we adopt their approach and we think about how monetary policy there has responded compared to Australia, well, actually, Australia has had less interest rate rises compared to all those other countries and we've managed to do quite well so far in the past few years. So will those recommendations actually change monetary policy for the better here? I don't think so. Yep, all right. Kerry, what do you think? Signal or noise? I don't think it reveals anything new in the immediate term. I mean, there's a lot of wooliness around the language in a lot of these things, uh, a lot of how it's interpreted. And while the agreement was in principle, this RBA has some flexibility in exactly what they do and how it's implemented by the middle of next year. So it could go either way in terms of, is this going to make uh, a central bank that's actually more hawkish on balance or more dovish on balance? It's too really early to say. So in that kind of regard, I'd say it's more noise than signal. Okay, fair enough. Warren, what do you think, signal or noise? So if you're looking at the way the RBA operates, particularly from a governance point of view, there's a lot of signal. I, they're going to modernise the governance structures, which doesn't matter for monetary policy, theoretically, and it just means the place should be better run, and I think that's important. In terms of monetary policy, I think at this stage it's noise for the reasons outlined already. Um, I do worry, therefore, that... I think prior to the pandemic, um, and you could argue even now, um, you know, Australia's getting the best monetary policy going around. So can we improve on that? I doubt it. Um, so the risk is that we get worse monetary policy in the future. It all depends on not the structures they've just announced, but who they appoint over the next couple of years. Absolutely critical. And the first couple of appointments don't fill me with confidence. Okay. Well, we'll come back to the, the appointments a little later in the show. I'm, I'm curious to hear from, from the panel do you think there are any actionable things investors can do to start preparing for these changes or can at least start to be scanning or looking out for, you know, as these recommendations come to light and actually start becoming law and start being practiced? It's difficult to know how the board members, what scale of dovish or hawkish they're going to be. We kind of know that in the US. We know which way the different members lean. I mean, they do shift around a little bit, but for the RBA, we really don't know how the other board members vote and because we don't know I think it's difficult to make an investment decision based on that we don't know how monetary policy will respond based on these recommendations well correct me if I'm wrong if it's uh, I think they're going to start publishing the the votes but they're not publishing who yes. uh, is voting one way or another so that actually you know it, it's it's more clear but it's also not at the same we time we might be able to gauge some um some we, we might be able to gauge it through the speeches that the board members are going to do because there will be a requirement for all the board members to speak. If, I think once a year was the recommendation. Yeah, all right, fair enough. Sorry, Hans, I think just if, uh, if you think about what this actually means in terms mm. of the markets and right now, again, there is a degree of 
uh, uncertainty given uh, which way the board leans. But I think more importantly is if you look at these recommendations and think, okay, the RBA has become more credible. It's more likely to be hit that midpoint on the inflation target than not. And how does that adjust your view of inflation in the future? Therefore, how does that adjust your view of, of where yields are going to be and rates are going to be? Um, our bias is that inflation and yields are going to be higher. So for us, that means if you're not already thinking about fixed income in your portfolio, you definitely should be. Um, and very much moving away from the framework of where we've been in the last decade, it would downplay perhaps thinking about zero interest rate policies, thinking about a reversion to QE if you're going to have higher inflation and, and higher rates over time. Yeah, sure. Warren? Uh, well, look, I think the opportunity uh, they had was to harmonise our inflation target with the rest of the world and my point about the Aussie dollar and sticking with that, and they didn't do that. So I think that certainly locks in uh, a higher inflation rate in Australia than overseas. Um, at least in people's minds, and it should because it's explicit now. Uh, you could argue that the old target was set up a long time ago, but they're really just doing what everyone else is doing. And then, of course, the equal emphasis to unemployment um, and inflation should, all of that, if followed through by the board over the next 10 years, should be higher inflation in this country than A, what we've had, and B, what other countries are doing. So there should be a premium put in for all of that. Let's take a deep dive now into probably the single most, or one of at least, the most important recommendations from the RBA review. It's the idea that its monetary and regulation functions will be split into two separate boards. It's kind of similar to what other central banks do, including the Bank of Canada. Now, the new regime also comes with post-meeting press conferences and policy reviews every five years. But are two boards better than one? Kerry, signal the noise. Uh, well, from someone who owns too many surfboards, I can definitely make the case for having more boards than fewer. Um, but. I think it does follow, uh, again, coming back to that point, they're, they're copying best practices or practices from other central banks around the world. Effectively, this is a way of saying, you know, your monetary setting board needs to do better. They're going to have better access to economic information, better access to the staff and their forecasts, better access to, to external uh, and independent information coming through, theoretically a longer time to analyse this data to make their decisions. So hopefully a better quality output. Um, and I think it does address some of the concerns that have come up around the governance, whether um, the authority really lies and if too much is vested in the governor versus the other members of the board and some of the decisions that have been made, such as you know, the, the snapback on the yield curve control. Um, so I think there will be uh, some positives around this, not to contradict my sort of uh, noise mm. comment earlier, but does it meaningfully change anything for most people? Probably not. Okay, so we'll go with noise then for this one too, I suspect. All right, fair enough. Noise then for Kerry. Warren, are two boards better than one? Signal or noise? Yeah, I've long said that this is the right way to go, not just because it's what's done overseas, but I think uh, there is an important governance role that every organisation requires, and that was being sacrificed at the RBA. So that needed to be taken care of. And by necessity, the people doing that are the different skill set to the people doing monetary policy. So you sort of needed it if you're going to modernise that governance. And then, of course, it all comes down to who goes on that board. I think. The idea that you get these independent economic experts who work one day a week and get paid is a nice starting point, but I think they need more flexibility. So they might need to think about a couple of board members who are full-on economists who get paid a lot of money working full-time and being that counter voice. And you might need a couple that don't get paid at all or a normal traditional board. They need to be more flexible than prescriptive around who's on that board. And the end game is who's on that board. So, but you do think, if you do think two boards are better than one, then... It's probably a good signal for investors. It's, oh, it's for sure. For, for sure, yep. Yep, okay. So, <laughs> noise from Kerry, signal from Warren. Which way are you going to fall on this? Signal or noise? I'm going to say signal. Yeah. And it's ultimately because you will have 
the experts on the monetary policy board, or hopefully experts, and uh, the governance experts on the other board. So I think that that should be a good outcome for investors. Okay. It'll give more time for the experts to focus on monetary policy, which is what's needed. Yeah, well, do one thing and do one thing well. Warren, I, th I thought I'd, I'd run uh, a different kind of question past you, but, but just for you. How many mistakes do you think could have been avoided if this review had come earlier? My view is that there was only one heinous crime against uh, our economy, and that was the Ford guidance. Um, we can debate about QE and rates going to zero, and you know I didn't like it, but you know it's a policy choice. It wasn't um, a real, as I said, crime. Uh, Ford guidance was a crime, um, and that was a real mistake. If I was on the board, it wouldn't have happened. Uh, but if and I was never going to be on the board, but would it have happened in this structure? I think you have a greater chance of it happening if you had a bunch of academic economists on there because it was all that theoretical stuff that Ben Bernanke was going on about, about you know, reducing expectations for interest rates, which the, the great failure for me was these current board members, these eminent Australians with all this experience, didn't stop them from doing it. That's, mm. and, they, and that's been, always been my argument. I, I got on the front page of the Telegraph last year not really wanting to be there. But my argument wasn't that the governor should go. My argument was that a couple of board members should take accountability for that. Mm. that. They might not be economic experts. They might not be able to argue with the RBA on the economy, but that was a communications, human, pragmatic issue. They should have just said, no, this is a bad idea. All right, well, let me raise that point again about the, the board members now with UDN, if, if I can. And then you talk about the, the collaboration. We, we didn't know how much collaboration there was, really, between the RBA board, because we had no idea who was voting for what until the decision came out. There are no market economists on the RBA board. There are two new members, though, on the corporate side. Let's put this image up for the people who are watching the video and for the podcast audience. The two new faces are Ian Ross, uh, who's the former president of the Fair Work Commission, and Elena Rubin, former chairwoman of Afterpay. Let me ask you this then. Do you think this was also a missed opportunity to add some more outside expert opinion to the RBA than just academics or just people within the bank? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to downplay the qualifications of these two new board members, but mark, market, more market economists on the board would have made sense because if you think about what happened with the forward guidance, the market was pricing in rates to go higher by 2024. Mm. And some economists, including ourselves at AMP, were of the view also that rates would have to rise earlier. So if you did have more of those market economists, you would see the reaction moving faster than where the RBA saw it, which yeah. was important. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, why don't we take a look at that monetary policy in action? So here's topic three, and topic three is the May RBA rate decision, hiking interest rates by 25 basis points and shocking the market and really the, the economics consensus, or at least most of the economists surveyed in the, the major surveys. And the rate hikes may not be over yet. Let's take a look at this chart from Morgan Stanley because the real worry for the RBA is really a re-acceleration in services inflation. So for those of you who uh, are watching, basically what we've got here is the light pink line, goods inflation going one way, that is down, or it's peaked and it's coming down, and then services coming back up. But here's the question for the panel. Have they gone one too many? Signal or noise, Warren? Oh, no, no, this is signal. This was much needed. Um, and I'll argue with my chart later why. But um, the most interesting question about this week um, is why the, not the market economists getting it wrong, that happens all the time, but the market had such a low probability priced in. Why was that? Now, I think there's some market dynamics post the failure of Silicon Valley Bank around fixed income and bonds. 
but really I've never seen such a low probability when it was live. But I just couldn't understand that market expectation. I've been a bond strategist and you know, I think the market has heaps of information. But for me, that's the most interesting. Why was the market, not the market economists, but market pricing, people with money on the line, so out of whack with this? Yeah, the rates traders and the rates pricing, I think is what, yeah, is Ford, what you're Ford pricing, yeah. Yeah, then, and the Ford pricing. What now, do you say to this? I, I think that that goes to lack of proper communication from the RBA. They have been flip-flopping around for the past few months. We, we weren't expecting that move yesterday, so I'm, I'm gonna say that you know, as, mm-hmm. as, as first. But, and so I don't think that the move was necessary for other points that we can discuss later, but earlier, back last year, they became a little bit more dovish, then they became more hawkish after the inflation data earlier this year. And they've kind of, if you read different speeches or a somp from them, or a minutes, post-meeting statement, they've all seemed to have they're telling us different things. So mm. if you talk to people who are managing money, the portfolio managers, they're saying that they can't read the RBA, which is why I think the market pricing was so low because all the communication from them recently has been, well, we're going to pause in April and another po- that we probably won't pause just for one month because yep. that was seen that was seen to be quite unlikely. Okay, so would you err on the signal side that, you know, it was it was a rate hike and it was one too many or would you err more on the noise side just because the communication was so confusing and it's been very hard for, for markets to price and market economists also to price in whether there was going to be a hike. I mean, I don't think that there's going to be another rate hike, so I'm going to say noise. Okay. Kerry, you talk to international investors and international clients, I'm sure, in, in your job all the time. What do you think? Have they gone one too many? Signal or noise? No, no, we, uh, we didn't expect them to hike rates uh, when they did. We thought it would come next month. Mm. Uh, with, you know, it's, I think the issue here is really the flip-flopping that you've mentioned the credibility has been severely like tarnished in terms of the last year or so. Uh, and so maybe that added to why it was so difficult and the market didn't price it in. They just, you know, we've been down this path before and, and maybe the surprise shouldn't have been a surprise in that regard. Uh, for us, you know, how terminal rate is 385. So we think that we've got there, probably won't see any more rate hikes. My real concern when it comes to the RBA or actually some other central banks around the world is that they're just taking a really narrow focus of inflation. They're just suddenly streamlining things down to like its services, its super core. Um, and the risk is that they keep focusing too narrowly on those little components of inflation that are moving. And then you do get the, the over-tightening that comes through, the unnecessary rate hike that, you, that comes through. And I think that's the, that's the risk for the market at the moment. I think we're very much at the end of central bank policy rate hikes around the world. I'm pretty sure the RBA should be done by now. doesn't mean they will be, but they should be done in our view. And that that inflation growth trade-off will start to become more meaningful on the, on the growth side and the need for them to, to stop hiking. Yeah, okay. So, but if, if you're saying that, you know, they should have been done, but, you know, they, they've gone another 25 basis points, they haven't ruled out even more down the road, you know, is, is that a signal to you or do you treat it more as noise because they should have been done by now and they've got one too many? No, they're reading the data like everyone else. I think there's, there's this uh, impression that um, there's something they have that not everyone else has. They're looking at the same stuff everyone else is looking mm. at, right? So they're waiting for, you know, the retail sales numbers. They're waiting for um, some of the inflation monthly reports. They're waiting for that data to come out just like everyone else and then trying to interpret it against what they think should happen. Um, and so the bias is that they do another hike. Um, they've kind of toned down the messaging a little bit. But again, in the next four weeks, who knows what could happen? <laughs> you know, it's just, it's been like kind of thing. People seem willing to spend money regardless of how the economy is going at the moment. Okay, so if you think they're going to go again, I'll put you down as a signal or do we put you down as a noise? <laughs> uh, I think it's a signal. I think there's okay. a, little, uh, a little bit too much inflation in the economy for them. Okay, all right. One, I'll, I'll stick with you then. So we now that the RBA has hiked this month, they may go again next month, even though you don't, or maybe some members of the, the panel don't think they should. What are you saying to investors about positioning right now? 
Well, I think, again, it comes back to this, uh, the uncertain outlook at the moment and the shift in what we've seen has been the dynamics over the last 12 months. If last year was all about inflation moving higher, rates moving higher, this year is about inflation moving lower eventually, uh, rates obviously stopping hiking, that creates a very different dynamic for investing. Uh, and we do just sort of lean more and more towards fixed income and duration when, when yields back up in terms of uh, that looking like a much better risk-adjusted return in portfolios at the moment and something that hasn't been there for some time. So there still is opportunities, and I think as we move towards that outlook for, for a weaker growth story, you should be prepared to be nimble to see those opportunities they do come through. And we'll talk about this when we show our chart around thinking around the next cycle, not just the end of this one. I think everybody's ready to go to Charts to Watch. What do you think, everybody? It's time for Charts to Watch. Thank you, everybody. That was a, a robust debate, and I suspect these charts are also going to be very interesting. Here we go. Deanna, your chart is, I think it's quite important, actually, in terms of the broader context. It's the massive rise in interest rates across major economies over the last two years. So walk us through this chart and why you think it's important. Well, this just goes to the point that we were making before. I haven't updated it for the latest rate hike mm. because uh, that only happened make yesterday. Make it slightly steeper. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but ultimately, it goes to the point that we're, we're trying to make our RBA in line with other global central banks, but we've actually had if you're a debt holder, the best monetary policy compared to all the other major central banks. I mean, some people would argue maybe we should have more, have, have had more rate hikes mm. to get inflation down. Um, but, but I would argue that we've, that we've had enough and that the other countries may see some pretty weak growth outcomes. And they also have much higher levels of wages growth, which Australia doesn't have. So the rate hikes have been necessary there. Yeah. All right. Thank you very much. Kerry, your chart, I mean, you were just talking about it. I, I think it's one for the optimists. <laughs> um, it's the performance of the S&P 500 following the last Federal Reserve rate hike, which we haven't necessarily referenced in this discussion, but I don't think they're too far off you know, their peaks either. Walk us through this chart and what do you think it says to you? Yeah, the chart just shows you how the S&P 500s were performed in the year after the very last rate hike uh, from the uh, Federal Reserve. And it's just an illustration of saying that this thing that's been weighing on the market, you know, once that does come to an end, the equity market can rally off the back of that. And it does sort of signal that the growth has become more of a concern and eventually you'll get to grow rate cuts, which are actually quite positive for equities. And it comes back to this point, I think all our investors are worried about the recession, the slow growth, how to be defensively positioned, how to be cautious. And, and that's right at the moment, we'd be underweight equities in the portfolio. But, you know, we move into 2024, it's a completely different story. Markets are forward-looking. So there's this idea that, yeah, be aware that we're coming to the end of this cycle, but be very ready to be positioned for the start of the new one and the opportunities that will present themselves because those opportunities are greatest when the growth is the weakest. Markets are always forward-looking. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Warren, your chart is, is interesting. You've alluded to it already a couple of times, but I'm, I'm looking forward to your explanation about this. This is real policy interest rates. But you've done it with a bit of a twist. So walk us through this one and why you think it's a chart maybe investors should be paying more attention to. Yeah, so I think one of the things that is making this difficult is that you not only look at the change in nominal interest rates, the cash rate or policy rate as a judge of monetary tightening or monetary policy stance, you need to look at the real interest rate, just like you need to look at real GDP and real wages when you're looking at the economy. And of course, you look at the real interest rate right now in Australia and it's negative three point something percent um, or just under now sorry um, compared to other countries which is a lot lower like minus one or something and that's because we've still got some cyclically high inflation which we hope will come down so what i've done is i think this is why central banks are looking at it they want to get their real interest rates to zero never in human history has inflation been brought under control with negative real interest rates you don't use the current inflation you don't use your target that's too optimistic but they should use their current forecast for core inflation and this chart is the real policy rate in each of the dollar block countries so peers to Australia 
um, using that 2023 forecast. You can see this explains why Canada paused. Uh, they've got the real rate up. Um, why New Zealand went 50 last month when everyone didn't think they were going to do that because they've got this high inflation forecast. Um, why the Fed's probably nearly done. Uh, but of course, also why the RBA still got a little bit of work left to do. You, you know, and, and this is just the first phase. They just, that's just when they finish this first phase of tightening. There is nothing in history that says we're going to get inflation under control with real interest rates at zero. You're looking at a history in these sorts of economies where real interest rates have to go two, three, four percent. Um, let's all pray that the big change in nominal rates gets the job done combined with a zero real rate. That's what everyone's hoping. Mm. Uh, but that remains to be seen. Um, we'll find out more about that in 24 and 25. Boy, has this been a terrific discussion or what? That's it. That's Signal and Noise for the month. Big thank you to Warren Hogan of Judo Bank. Thank you very much. Kerry Craig of JP Morgan Asset Management. Thank you. And of course, Deanna Messina of AMP. Thank you very much. We're back next time with a show dedicated to income investing. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe to Livewire Markets and the Market Index websites, both of them, as well as our YouTube channel and our podcast. Thank you for joining us. <laughs>